Hey, everyone. Here at What Next, our job is to ask questions. And this year, we asked a lot of serious ones about war, politics, fascism, healthcare. But some of our questions were a little less orthodox. Questions like, has pickleball invaded our towns? Do aliens exist? And is Steven Spielberg actually cursed? Since it's the holidays, we're going to take a break from the headlines and listen back to some of our wackier questions. So if you're on a little vacation from the news right now, we promise these shows are going to be like unwrapping a present, the kind you actually want to get. Today, since it's Christmas, we're pontificating about the pontiff. This has been a big year for the Pope, in case you did not know. He's gotten involved with politics, urging a ceasefire in Gaza, telling world leaders to act on climate change. And just last week, he made news when he said priests could bless same-sex couples. But not everyone, it turns out, is into this activist pope. Back in February, we talked about why. Here's the show. I think David Gibson would admit that he's a straight-up fan of Pope Francis. He's a fun guy. He's got a great sense of humor. He likes joking around. David's the director of Fordham's Center on Religion and Culture. But his first job was with Vatican Radio. So he's been Pope watching for a while. Hold on, how, how do you know that? Have you joked with Pope Francis? I haven't joked with him personally. I've been there in, in large rooms where he's um, told jokes. One of David's favorite funny Francis stories is from his first year as Pope. The Holy Father was circulating in Vatican City when he ran into a couple of newlyweds. They worked for a charity that sends clowns to entertain young cancer patients. And they gave him one of those stick-on red noses, you know, those foam red noses. And the Pope put it on. So there's a picture out there of the Pope, you know, the Vicar of Christ wearing a foam red nose. This is not typical Pope behavior. Francis doesn't have a typical papal reaction to politics, either. You know, he invited Bernie Sanders over to the Vatican for, you know, in the middle of uh, Sanders' um, campaign uh, in 2016. He wants to dialogue and partner with absolutely anybody. And he sees, he's a Jesuit, and he sees the good wherever he finds it. More recently, Pope Francis made headlines for the way he spoke about homosexuality. Pope Francis continued his outreach to the LGBTQ community, declaring in a new interview that homosexuality is not a crime and laws against it are unjust. We are all children of God and God loves us as we are and for the strength with which we fight for our dignity. In truth, Francis's take here was not that different from what the church has been saying for years. But it was emblematic of the way this pope has been trying to reorient his flock. The bigger lesson that he wants to get out is that, you know, look, we've all sinned. All sins are sins. The church has focused way too much on the pelvic issues, on the pelvic sins. It's all about sex, who you sleep with, contraception, all of these things. As he says in that interview, what about charity. Have you done enough? You know, you're worrying so much about who someone sleeps with. The church says that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is a sin. Masturbation is a sin. You know, do we try to outlaw that? Are we focusing on that all the time? No. He says, what about taking care of the poor? What about taking care of the refugee? What about taking care of the person who is suffering? I know the Pope is supposed to be 
like a physical embodiment of the Catholic Church. Is that true of Pope Francis? Like, is everyone else in Vatican City like, yeah, right on when he says this stuff? Well, a lot of people who are his biggest fans are not the people who are going to church, going to mass every Sunday. They're people who are alienated from the church, who haven't been going to church. And they're like, wow, this is wild. Here's somebody, here's a pope who actually talks like a Christian. This is David's polite way of saying that a lot of the people who do go to church on Sunday, and even a few of the people within Vatican City, they are not Pope Francis's biggest fans. And over the last few weeks, these detractors have made their opinions very, very clear. I mean, look, when you've had a a church of 2,000 years, there's almost a precedent for everything. You go back uh, a millennium and you can find anything. But this level of opposition, this level of backbiting, this level of maneuvering, manipulating is really extraordinary um, in the history of the Catholic Church and certainly in the history of the modern church. There have always been divisions and differences, that kind of thing. But it's really amped up. Today on the show, inside the battle for the future of the Catholic Church, I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To David Gibson, part of what's weird about all the drama swirling around Pope Francis is that this pope has always been pretty transparent about how he wants to lead. And his leadership style is an intentional contrast to the last pope, Pope Benedict. Ten years back, when Benedict retired, it was after a stream of controversial choices. He rejected condom use as a way to fight AIDS. He welcomed right-wing bishops back into the fold, including a Holocaust denier. And he attracted a whole lot of attention for a speech where he referred to Islam as evil or inhuman. The pope was quoting someone else here, but still... Into all this came Francis, then known as Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio of Argentina. When the cardinals all got together in Rome for their conclave, that's the meeting to choose the next pope, Bergoglio gave a speech where he invited the cardinals to chart a new path. He said the church was at risk of becoming sick with theological narcissism. And that's such a powerful speech because basically most of the work of the conclave is done in these private meetings, these general congregations, they call them in the week or two before they actually process into the Sistine Chapel. And each cardinal in the College of Cardinals, there are about 120 electors, is given four minutes to say, it's basically your manifesto for the church. If they like it, it's a campaign speech. If they don't, you're done. And they each have four minutes, and Bergoglio got up and gave, as you said, that really powerful, hard speech. And he said, we have to go out. We have to recover the original thrust of the gospel. He said, there's a a verse in Revelation where Jesus is seen knocking at the door, and Bergoglio said, sometimes I think he's knocking at the door 
because we've locked him inside the church and we need mm-hmm. to let him out. We need to go out. And he was just, he was, it was a, it was a manifesto against this kind of institutional protectionism and they loved it. Yeah. Cardinal Borgoglio becomes Pope Francis. But yeah, what did he, what did they want him to change? They didn't expect that he was going to say, it's all of us who have to change. What were the first signs that something wasn't operating normally in this papacy? And I I say that recognizing that it may never have been operating normally because for the most part, there was another pope, a retired pope, sort of in the background the whole time as this kind of like shadow leader. So it may have been from the beginning. But when did you first notice it? I really first noticed it when I was standing there in St. Peter's Square on March 13th, 2013. Hmm. Right when he was elected. Right when he was elected. And he comes out onto the balcony. It's kind of a rainy night. And nobody knows what to think. When you go into a conclave, if the Pope dies tomorrow or resigns, there are 120 cardinal electors who go in there. Any one of them could be Pope. And you don't know the dynamics because they really don't know each other. So when they come together, they're kind of trying to figure it out themselves. And there's no primary. There's one vote. You know, I mean, they're in there voting until one of them gets two thirds plus one of the majority. And so Bergoglio walks out and you're like, holy cow, who is this guy? And he comes out and he's not wearing actually the traditional, all of the traditional kind of garb that every new pope comes out dressed in. They always and he said, this is I've heard it from several people. But as he was going out on the balcony, you know, pope's elected and they've got to find a white cassock for him. They've got three in the antechamber to the Vatican Sistine Chapel. They've got three different sizes of white cassocks because you don't know. Are you going to get a little Pope? Are you going to get a mid-sized Pope? Are you going to get Goldilocks Pope? You know, who's going to come out? We have to dress this guy. He's got to walk out in like 20 minutes, uh, you know, dressed as a Pope. And they also, they dress him. They put these great copes and capes on him and things. And he said, no, no, none of that. He said, uh, the carnival is over. (laughs) <laughs> That's what he said just before he walked out. In other words, wow. all this pomp, pomp and circumstance is done. We're not doing this. And he he walked out and he looked at us all and the, to the and the, the cameras and he paused and he said, Buonasera, good evening. And you just it wasn't this traditional kind of papal pomp. Hmm. It was a big deal because he was the first pope from South America. Exactly. From the Southern Hemisphere, from outside of Europe. This is huge. And then the next day, he goes in person to pay his bill at his pension where he was staying in Rome. Hmm. And then he says, no, I'm not going to move into the apostolic palaces. I'm going to stay in the, the kind of little guest hotel that they have on the grounds of the Vatican. And he's lived there ever since. He said the Apostolic Palace has all these big rooms and very small doors. I need people. I need to see people. So from the very beginning, he's projected a completely different way of being. And as much as anything, that's driven people, some people, crazy. For me, I feel like the visible trouble began when the retired Pope Benedict died right before the new year. And it seemed to set off this chain of events, a little like a dam breaking at the Vatican. All of a sudden, things were up in the air. What happened? 
there was a lot of pent up frustration and there were a lot of you realize there was just so much pressure building up look this whole situation of having a retired pope hadn't happened in 600 years it'll happen again but pope benedict i think his best move as pope was retiring it's kind of a left-handed compliment but it's true he <laughs> he just demystified the papacy but the problem is that he kept his papal name he kept the papal white and he created this title for himself pope emeritus and he lived in the vatican that's a recipe for tension yeah, now that he's died, it became clear that there were all of these people inside the Vatican who had divided loyalties. They were serving the current pope, Pope Francis, all the while sort of nursing feelings for the former pope, I guess, is how to put it. Yeah, I mean, there had been these divided loyalties and there had been these machinations. This was there all the time. But as soon as he breathed his last on New Year's Eve... December 31st, all of a sudden this all came out into the open. I mean, honestly, Benedict was barely cold before his personal secretary, Georg Ganswein, Monsignor Archbishop Ganswein, um, gorgeous George, as they call him. He is really handsome. He's got a Sinatra vibe. I know, you got to say. And, um, yeah, but he's also super conservative and a real manipulator. And he he came out like a couple days later and said, "There, well, I'm going to publish my tell-all book about living with Benedict. Is that how he framed it? It's a tell-all? Well, basically, that was, his publisher framed it that way. And yeah. and it was this clear kind of attention grab. You know, it came out right at, right at the time of uh, Prince Harry's spare. And the joke was that um, Gonshine was was the Prince Harry of the of the Vatican. You know, I'm going to get even. I'm going to I'm going to you know settle the scores. And he does. And he tells all these stories and whether true or not that Pope Benedict was very upset with Francis at various points. And he, and again, he just, you know, he, he, he airs all of his grievances about how he was moved out of his favorite apartment, things like that. It's very, it's very petty. Did Gonsfein take issue with Francis's approach to Catholicism too? Very much so. He said it was in as polite as he could be. He said he's very com- confusing and very ambiguous. And there's, there's a lot of hurt in the church and he needs to be nicer to these uh, very, kind of right-wing types. This is this whole series of events. Benedict dies, Gonsfein publishes his tell-all. Um, George Pell, this 80-year-old Australian cardinal who's been a champion of the right, publishes a column in The Spectator that blasts the Francis papacy, and he dies the very next day. And then Pell is revealed as the um, author of an anonymous uh, kind of uh, Flight 63 type of memo huh. that had been published a year ago that had been circulating among the, the the cardinals, this incredibly intense critique of Francis and his papacy that was really a manifesto, almost a platform for the next conclave. It's been discovered the late Cardinal George Pell was the secret author of an anonymous Vatican memo slamming Pope Francis. The memos condemn the current Pope for his politically correct approach to the faith. Cardinal Pell was critical of the Pope's willingness to embrace changing ideology. That's the, Those are the kind of machinations that have been going on. So you're saying these guys are setting up like the next papal election while the, there are like two popes. <laughs> You know, there's yes. like a pope and a retired pope, and they're already thinking, like, how are we going to get this guy out and get to the next? 
the campaign is on. It's been on for a while. And again, they smell blood in the water. They've been spreading this Cardinal Pell, the late Cardinal Pell, who died um, uh, January 9th. He'd been circulating rumors, which to the press and to anybody who would listen, that Francis was dying of cancer, Francis was dying of diabetes, Francis was dying of high blood pressure. Ouch. All of this was to kind of generate, to, to rally the conservative forces to find a candidate who they could elect in the next conclave to turn the clock back, to reverse all of what Francis has done, to really be the Trump who would follow an Obama. What a mess. Or entertaining. I mean, depend on your, your point of view. <laughs> I also find mess entertaining. Um, the thing, I want to talk about one more thing before we move on to kind of next steps. You talked a bit about the death of Cardinal Pell and how that was another tremor at the Vatican. And the thing that really stood out to me about Pell's disloyalty, the fact that he had clearly very much disagreed with Pope Francis and his approach, is that Francis had been kind of stunningly loyal to Pell while he was alive. Like, he, Pell had been, Pell had faced sex abuse charges in Australia. And Francis always stood by him, defended his innocence. And when those conviction that conviction was overturned, Francis welcomed him back to Rome. It really is. I mean, it's such a stab in the back. You know, there's a little bit of the old mafia adage, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Look, George Pell was a real outspoken, let's say, to others. You call him a bully um, figure in the Australian church, but he could get stuff done. So what did uh, Pope Francis do? He brought George Pell from Australia to Rome and he said, take charge of the finances. And Pell did. He alienated almost everybody and he eventually had to be moved out. But he really launched the financial reform of the Vatican, which has continued and which has really been one of Francis's unsung accomplishments. But then again, Pell did a, had a terrible record on sex abuse when he was a bishop in Australia. Then he was himself personally accused. And I think it's a very dodgy case. He was actually convicted, sent to jail until it was overturned. He spent a year in jail. And whatever you think, Francis stood by, beside him when he was um, finally, you know, his conviction was overturned. Uh, Pell was too late. He was already retired. He was too old. But he welcomed him back. He had a personal audience with him. And then he turns out that, um, you know, Pell's been stabbing him in the back and Francis said in this recent interview, he said, look, he was a great guy. I liked him a lot. But all I ask is that people say these things to my face. Mm. And that's the real that's that's an astonishing here. Are these kind of you know conservative, principled, courageous opponents, but they're operating really in the dark behind pseudonyms. After the break, amidst all this backstabbing, how does an 86 year old Pope Francis secure his more inclusive legacy for the Catholic Church. Okay, so you've laid out all the juicy details of why the Catholic Church is in turmoil right now. But I guess I wonder what happens next? Because it's not like there's some kind of process to work all this out. One thing I was struck by reading about the controversy is that people kept saying if Pope Francis 
wants to ensure that his legacy remains intact, he needs to hang on to power for a couple more years. Can you explain why? One word, cardinals. Hmm. Three words, the col- the College of Cardinals. Look, for all of the efforts to change things in the church, it still comes down to a conclave where 120 more or less cardinals gather to elect a successor. Cardinals lose the right to vote in a conclave when you hit the age of 80. Oh. So there are 120 cardinals every year, every time the calendar ticks over, every time a, a cardinal hits birthday hits 80, boom, there's a vacancy in the College of huh. Cardinals. And the Pope can then fill that. If only we had that in the Supreme Court, we might have fewer problems. Pope Francis has been Pope for almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in March. He's appointed about two-thirds, almost 70% of the the cardinals in the College of Cardinals. And if he goes on for another two years until the age of 88, if you just look at the calendar, he'll be able to appoint another two dozen cardinals. And that will really reshape things. That will really change the dynamic politically. So do we see signs that he's strategizing here, looking for allies and trying to raise them up? Absolutely. He's he's a Jesuit. He's no fool. He <laughs> knows what's happening. He knows the birthdays of all these various cardinals, many of which, many of whom are very opposed to him. But his strategizing is not to try and pull the strings for one particular cardinal or another. He's not trying to pick a successor. He's trying to diversify the College of Cardinals, to make it look more like the church, to make it a more pastoral group of men. Again, Francis is not remaking the church. He's revealing the church that exists. So he's appointing cardinals from all around the world, from places that have never had a cardinal before. They all used to be European. They were almost all uh, from Italy. Uh, it this diversification, this globalization, internationalization of the College of Cardinals has been going on for several decades. Pope Francis from Argentina, the per- first pope from the Southern Hemisphere, has really amped that up. How is it like? Can you give an example? Well, I mean, he's he he picked a cardinal from Togo, you know, where there's like fifty thousand Catholics total. He's picked a cardinal from countries from from Bahrain an Arab country. He's picking cardinals where Catholics are a tiny minority because he doesn't want to pick cardinals necessarily from places that are super Catholic, where you're kind of presiding over a Catholic culture. He wants people who know how to live and preach as a Christian, as a minority in a country where the Catholic church is not a powerhouse. Well, and maybe a place where the Catholic church is growing. And where the Catholic Church is growing. He wants the College of Cardinals to look more like the Catholic Church. It's an upside-down church, if you're looking at it from our North American perspective. The the weight, three-quarters of the world's 1.3 billion Catholics live in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, before the last few weeks went down, there were all these rumors that maybe— Pope Francis would retire. But it seems to me, listening to you, that to keep his legacy going, he can't retire right now. Do you think those rumors were just all wrong and don't really get what this guy's up to? I think there's a lot of wishful thinking 
Hmm. Um, you know, and by some who want Francis to leave and all of his closest associates and he himself have recently said he's, you know, no plans to retire. So, uh, he would retire. Certainly he's a very pragmatic person. He would love, he has said he would like to retire, wear a black cassock, go out to a retired priest's residence in the outskirts of Rome and hear confessions for the rest of his life. Never hear from him again. Hmm. He would love to do that. But he, one source of these rumors is that he had said while Benedict was alive, he did not want to retire. Because look, having two popes, two men dressed in white was confusing enough and created enough problems. Imagine three popes, two <laughs> retired popes, and then they would elect another. You're talking, you're talking HBO drama there. The, you know, you know, young pope, old pope, new pope, uh, retired pope. The 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 thing is when Benedict died, yes, it did free Francis's hands so that he could retire at any time. And he's 86. He knows he may not wake up tomorrow. He's not buying green bananas. But he also does not want this, the church to be overwhelmed by all this speculation that we've been talking about. He says, look, I'm going to go on as long as God gives me strength. So he's in pretty good shape, better than his enemies would like. And he's going to continue on. And he's going to continue to kind of preach this sort of conversion of the church. And above all, he's going to continue to appoint cardinals who will be of the same mindset in order to elect a successor that will carry on the reforms that he's initiated. David, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really grateful for your time. Great to be with you. Thank you. David Gibson is the director of Fordham University's Center on Religion and Culture. Since this show first aired in February, Pope Francis has been working to rein in his critics. In November, he fired one bishop. A few weeks after that, he reportedly evicted a cardinal from the Vatican. Which just goes to show, when you come at the Pope, you best not miss. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next?, the best way to support our work is to join our membership program. That is Slate Plus. To find out more, go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus. Tell them Mary sent you. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter and say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here next time.